Book four, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book four, part one. Henceforth removed from active life, and nevertheless saved from Bonaparte's anger by the protection of Madame Bacciocchi i left my temporary lodging in the rue de beaune and went to live in the rue de miromesnil the little house which i hired was occupied later by m de lally tolondal and madame denain his best beloved as they said in the days of diane de poitiers my garden abutted on a timber-yard and near my window i had a tall poplar tree which m de lally tolondal in order to breathe a less moist air himself felled with his coarse hand which to his eyes was transparent and fleshless it was an illusion like any other the pavement of the street at that time came to an end before my door. High up, the street or road wound across a piece of wasteland called the Butte aux Lapins, or Rabbit Hill. The Butte aux Lapins, sprinkled with a few isolated houses, joined on the right the Jardin de Tivoli, whence I had set out with my brother for the emigration, and on the left the Parc de Monceau. I strolled pretty often in that abandoned park, where the revolution had commenced among the orgies of the Duc d'Orléans. This retreat had been embellished with marble nudities and mock ruins a symbol of the light and vicious policy which was about to cover france with prostitutes and wreckage i busied myself with nothing at the utmost i conversed in the park with some pine-trees or talked of the duc d'enguien with three rooks at the edge of an artificial river hidden beneath a carpet of green moss deprived of my alpine legation and of my roman friendships even as i had been suddenly separated from my attachments in london i did not know how to dispose of my imagination and my feelings I sent them every evening after the sun, and its rays were unable to carry them over the seas. I returned indoors, and tried to fall asleep, to the sound of my poplar tree. Nevertheless, my resignation had increased my reputation. In France, a little courage always looks well. Some of the members of Madame de Beaumont's former company introduced me to new country houses. Monsieur de Tocqueville, my brother's brother-in-law, and guardian of my two orphan nephews, occupied Madame de Senozin's country seat on every hand were scaffold legacies there i saw my nephews grow up with their three tocqueville cousins among whom alexis the author of the democratie en amerique was prominent he was more spoilt at vernoy than i had been at combourg is this the last renown that i shall have seen unknown in its swaddling clothes alexis de tocqueville has travelled through the civilized america of which i have travelled through the forests vernoy has changed masters it has become the property of madame de saint fargo famous through her father and through the revolution which adopted her as its daughter near mont at the menil was madame de rosambo my nephew louis de chateaubriand eventually married mademoiselle d'orglande there niece to madame de rosambo the latter no longer airs her beauty around the pond and under the beeches of the manor it has passed when i went from verneuil to the menil i came to mezy on the road madame de mezy was romance wrapped up in virtue and maternal grief if only her child which fell from a window and broke its head had been able like the young quails which we shot to fly over the chateau and take refuge in the ile belle the smiling island of the seine cotonix perstipulas paskins on the other side of the seine not far from the marais madame de vintimille had introduced me to merville merville was an oasis created by the smile of a muse but of one of those muses whom the gallic poets call the learned fairies here the adventures of blanca and of Veleda were read before fashionable generations which falling one from the other like flowers to-day listen to the wailing of my years by degrees my brain wearying of rest in my rue de miromesnil saw phantoms form before it in the distance 
the genie du christianisme inspired me with the idea of proving that work by mixing christian and mythological characters together a shade which long afterwards i called simo d'osse sketched itself vaguely in my head not one of its features was fixed simo d'osse once conceived i shut myself up with her as i always do with the daughters of my imagination but before they have issued from the dreamy state and arrived from the banks of lethe through the ivory portals they often change their shape if i create them through love i undo them through love and the one cherished object which i later present to the light is the offspring of a thousand infidelities i remained only a year in the rue de miromenil because the house was sold i arranged with madame la marquise de coilin who lent me the top floor of her house on the place louis XV. madame de coilin was a woman of the grandest air she was nearly eighty years of age and her proud and domineering eyes bore an expression of wit and irony madame de coilin was in no way lettered and took pride in the fact she had passed through the voltairian age without being aware of it if she had conceived any idea of it whatever it was that of a time of a voluble middle class not that she ever spoke of her birth she was too great to make herself ridiculous she very well knew how to see small people without compromising her rank but after all she was born of the premier marquis of france if she was descended from drogon de nel killed in palestine in ten ninety six from raoul de nel the constable knighted by louis the ninth from jean the second de nel regent of france during the last crusade of st louis madame de coilin vowed that this was a stupidity on the part of fate for which she ought not to be held responsible she was naturally of the court as others more happy are of the streets as one may be a thoroughbred mare or a cab hack she could not help this accident and had no choice but to endure the ill with which heaven had been pleased to afflict her had madame de coilin had relations with louis XV? she never owned so much to me she admitted however that she had been very much loved but she pretended that she had treated the royal lover with the utmost harshness i have seen him at my feet she would say to me he had charming eyes and his language was seductive he offered one day to give me a porcelain dressing-table like that which madame de pompadour had oh sire cried i then i must use it to hide under by a singular chance i came across this dressing-table at the marchioness cunningham's in london she had received it from george the fourth and showed it to me with amusing simplicity madame de coilin occupied in her house a room opening under the colonnade corresponding to the colonnade of the wardrobe two sea-pieces by vernet which louis the well-beloved had given to the noble dame were hung up on an old green satin tapestry madame de coilin remained lying till two o'clock in the afternoon in a large bed with curtains also of green silk seated and propped up by pillows a sort of nightcap badly fastened to her head allowed her grey hairs to escape sprigs of diamonds mounted in the old-fashioned way fell upon the shoulder-pieces of her bed-cloak all covered with snuff as in the time of the fashionable ladies of the fronde around her on the bed-clothes lay scattered the addresses of letters torn off the letters themselves and on these addresses madame de coilin wrote down her thoughts in every direction she bought no stationery the post supplied her with it from time to time a little dog called lily put her nose outside the sheets came to bark at me for five or six minutes and crept back growling into her mistress kennel thus had time settled the young loves of louis quinze madame de chateauroux and her two sisters were cousins of madame de coilin the latter would not have been of the humour as was madame de mailly repentant and a christian to reply to a man who insulted her with a coarse name in the church of saint roche my friend since you know me pray to god for me madame de coilin miserly as are many people of wit piled up her money in cupboards she lived all devoured by a vermin of crown pieces which clung to her skin her servants relieved her when i found her plunged in a maze of figures she reminded me of the miser hermocrates who when dictating his will appointed himself his own heir 
Nevertheless, she gave a dinner occasionally, but she would rail against coffee, which nobody liked, according to her, and which served only to prolong the repast. Madame de Chateaubriand took a journey to Vichy with Madame de Coelin and the Marquis de Nel. The Marquis went on ahead, and had excellent dinners prepared. Madame de Coelin came after, and asked only for half a pound of cherries. On leaving, she was presented with huge bills, and then there was a terrible outcry. She would not hear of anything except the cherries. The landlord maintained that, whether you ate or did not eat, the custom was, at an inn, to pay for your dinner. Madame de Coelin had invented a form of illuminism to her own taste. Credulous and incredulous, she was led by her want of faith to laugh at those beliefs, the superstition of which frightened her. She had met Madame de Coudener. The mysterious Frenchwoman was illuminated only under reserve. She did not please the fervent Russian, whom she herself liked no better. Madame de Crudener said passionately to Madame de Coelin, Madame, who is your inside confessor? Madame, replied Madame de Coelin, I know nothing about my inside confessor. I only know that my confessor is in the inside of his confessional. Thereupon the two ladies saw each other no more. Madame de Coelin prided herself on having introduced a novelty at court, the fashion of floating chignons, in spite of Queen Marie Leschinska who was very pious and who opposed this dangerous innovation. She held that formerly no genteel person would ever have thought of paying her doctor, crying out against the plentifulness of women's linen. That smacks of the upstart, she said. We women of the court had only two shifts. When they were worn out, we renewed them. We were dressed in silk gowns, and we did not look like grisettes, like the young ladies of nowadays. Madame Seward, who lived in the Rue Royale, had a cock whose crowing annoyed Madame de Coelin. She wrote to Madame Seward, Madame, have your cock's throat cut. Madame Seward sent back the messenger with this note. Madame, I have the honour to reply to you that I shall not have my cock's throat cut. The correspondence went no further. Madame de Coelin said to Madame de Chateaubriand, Ah, my heart, what a time we live in. And yet it's that Pankuka girl, the wife of that member of the academy, you know. Monsieur Enna, a former clerk at the foreign office, and as tedious as a protocol, used to scribble fat novels. One day he was reading a description to Madame de Coelin, a tearful and abandoned lovelorn woman, who was mournfully fishing a salmon, and Madame de Coelin, who was growing impatient, and who disliked salmon, interrupted the author and said, with the serious air which made her so comical, Monsieur Enin, could you not make that lady catch a different fish? The stories which Madame de Coelin told could not be recollected, for there was nothing in them. All lay in the pantomime, the accent, and the expression of the narrator. She never laughed. There was one dialogue between Monsieur and Madame Jacques Minot, the perfection of which surpassed everything. When, in the conversation between the husband and wife, Madame Jacques Minot rejoined, But Monsieur Jacques Minot! The name was pronounced in such a tone that she was seized with immoderate laughter. Obliged to let this pass, Madame de Coelin gravely waited, taking snuff. Reading in a newspaper of the death of several kings, she took off her spectacles and, blowing her nose, said, There's an epizootic among crowned cattle. At the moment when she was ready to breathe her last, they were maintaining by her bedside that one succumbed only through letting oneself go, that if one paid great attention, and never lost sight of the enemy, one would not die at all. I believe it, she said, but I fear that something would distract me. She expired. I went down to her room the next day. I found Monsieur and Madame Davaret, her brother-in-law and sister, sitting before the fireplace with a little table between them, counting the louis in a bag which they had taken from a hollow wainscoting. The poor dead woman was there in her bed, behind the half-closed curtains. She no longer heard the sound of the gold which ought to have awaked her, and which fraternal hands were counting. Among the thoughts written down by the defunct on margins of printed paper and addresses of letters were some which were extremely beautiful. 
Madame de Coilin showed me what remained of the court of Louis XV under Bonaparte, and after Louis says, even as Madame de Houdetot had enabled me to see what still lingered in the nineteenth century of philosophic society. In the summer of the year 1805, I went to join Madame de Chateaubriand at Vichy, where Madame de Coilin had taken her, as I have said. I did not find Jussac, Terme, Flamarens there, whom Madame de Sévigné had, before and behind her, in 1677. They had been sleeping since one hundred and twenty and so many years. I left my sister, Madame de Caux, in Paris, where she had fixed her residence since the autumn of 1804. After a short stay at Vichy, Madame de Chateaubriand proposed that we should travel, in order to be away for some time from the political troubles. Two little journeys, which I then took in Auvergne and to Mont Blanc, have been collected in my works. After an absence of thirty-four years, I have lately received at Clermont, from men unacquainted with my person, the reception usually shown to an old friend. He who has long occupied himself with the principles which the human race enjoys in common has friends, brothers and sisters in every family. For if man is thankless, humanity is grateful. To those who have connected themselves with you through a kindly reputation, and who have never seen you, you are always the same. You have always the age which they ascribe to you. Their attachment, which is not disturbed by your presence, always beholds you young and beautiful, like the sentiments which they love in your writings. When I was a child in my Brittany, and heard speak of Auvergne, I imagined it a very distant, very distant country, where one saw strange things, where one could not go without great danger, and travelling under the protection of the Blessed Virgin. I never meet without a sort of melting curiosity those little Auvergnats, who go to seek their fortunes in this great world, with a small deal chest. They have little besides hope in their box, as they climb down their rocks. Lucky are they, if they bring it back with them. Alas, Madame de Beaumont had not lain two years on the bank of the Tiber, when I trod her natal soil in 1805. I was at but a few leagues from that Mont d'Or, where she had come in search of the life which she lengthened a little in order to reach Rome. Last summer, in 1838, I once more travelled through this same Auvergne. Between those two dates, 1805 and 1838, I can place the transformations which society has undergone around me. We left Clermont, and, on our way to Lyon, passed through Thiers and Rouen. This road, then little frequented, followed at intervals the banks of the Lignon. The author of the Astray, who is not a great genius, nevertheless invented places and persons that live. Such is the creative power of fiction, when it is appropriate to the age in which it appears. There is, moreover, something ingeniously fantastic in that resurrection of the nymphs and naiads who mingle with shepherds, ladies, and knights. Those different worlds go well together, and one is agreeably pleased with the fables of mythology united to the lies of fiction. Rousseau has related how he was taken in by Durfey. At Lyon we again found Monsieur Ballanche. He made the excursion to Geneva and Mont Blanc with us. He went wherever one took him, without having the smallest business there. At Geneva I was not received at the gate of the city by Clotilda, the betrothed of Clovis. Monsieur de Barant, senior, had become prefect of the Léman. At Coppet, I went to see Madame de Steele. I found her alone, buried in her castle, which was built round a melancholy courtyard. I spoke to her of her fortune and of her solitude as a precious means of independence and happiness. I offended her. Madame de Steele loved society. She looked upon herself as the most wretched of women, in an exile with which I should have been enchanted. Where in my eyes was the unhappiness of living on one's property, with all the comforts of life? Where was the misfortune of enjoying fame, leisure, peace, in a sumptuous retreat within sight of the Alps, in comparison with those thousands of breadless, nameless, helpless victims banished to all the corners of Europe, while their parents had perished on the scaffold? It is sad to be attacked by an ill which the crowd cannot understand. 
For the rest, that ill is therefore only the more intense. It is not lessened by being confronted with other ills. One is not judged by another's pain. That which afflicts the one rejoices the other. Hearts have varied secrets, incomprehensible to other hearts. Let us deny none his sufferings. It is with sorrows as with countries. Each man has his own. Madame de Steele called the next day on Madame de Chateaubriand at Geneva, and we left for Chamonix. My opinion on the scenery of the mountains caused it to be said that I was seeking to make myself singular. It will be seen, when I come to speak of the Saint-Gothard, that I have kept to my opinion. In the Voyage au Mont Blanc appears a passage which I will recall as linking together the past events of my life and the events of that same life, then still future, and to-day also past. There is one circumstance alone in which it is true that the mountains produce an oblivion of earthly troubles, that is, when one withdraws far from the world to consecrate himself to religion, an anchorite devoting himself to the service of mankind, a saint wishing to meditate in silence on the greatness of God, may find peace and joy on desert rocks. But it is not then the tranquillity of the spot that passes into the soul of those solitaries, it is on the contrary their soul that diffuses its serenity through the region of storms. There are mountains which I would still visit with extreme pleasure, those, for instance, of Greece and Judea. I should like to go over the spots with which my new studies lead me daily to occupy myself. I would gladly seek upon the table and take getters, other colours and other harmonies, after painting the unfamed mountains and unknown valleys of the new world. The last phrase foretold the voyage which, in fact, I performed in the next year, 1806. On our return to Geneva, without being able to see Madame de Steele again at Coppet, we found the inns crammed, but for the cares of M. de Forbin, who arrived unexpectedly and procured us a bad dinner in a dark waiting-room, we should have left the birthplace of Rousseau without eating. M. de Forbin was at that time in a state of beatitude. He displayed in his looks the inner felicity with which he was inundated. His feet did not touch the ground. Wafted on his talent and his blissfulness, he came down from the mountain as though from the sky, with his close-fitting painter's jacket, his palette on his thumb, his brushes in a quiver. A good fellow, nevertheless, although excessively happy, preparing to imitate me one day, when I should have made my voyage to Syria, wishing even to go as far as Calcutta, to make his loves return to him by an uncommon road, when they failed him on the beaten track. His eyes showed a protecting pity. I was poor, humble, uncertain of myself, and I did not hold the hearts of princesses in my mighty hands. In Rome I have had the honour of returning Monsieur de Forbin his lakeside dinner, I had the merit of having become an ambassador. In these days one sees the poor devil whom one has left that morning in the street turned into a king by evening. The noble gentleman, a painter in right of the revolution, began that generation of artists who dressed themselves up like sketches, grotesques, caricatures, somewhere prodigious mustachios. One would think they were going to conquer the world. Their brushes are halberds, their erasing knives sabres, others have huge beards and hanging or puffed-out hair. They smoke a cigar by way of volcano. These cousins of the rainbow, as our old Renier says, have their heads filled with deluges, seas, rivers, forests, cataracts, tempests, or else with carnages, executions, and scaffolds. In their rooms they have human skulls, foils, mandolins, morions, and dolmens. Bragging, pushing, uncivil, liberal, as far as the portrait of the tyrant whom they are painting, they endeavour to form a separate species between the ape and the satyr. They are anxious to make it understood that the secrecy of the studio has its dangers, and that there is no safety for the models. But how handsomely do they not redeem these oddities by a fevered existence, a suffering and sensitive nature, 
an entire abnegation of self an incalculable devotion to the miseries of others a delicate superior idealized manner of feeling a poverty proudly welcomed and nobly endured lastly sometimes by immortal talents the offspring of work passion genius and solitude leaving geneva at night to return to lyons we were stopped at the foot of the fort de l'ecluse waiting for the gates to be opened during this stay of the witches in macbeth on the heath strange things passed within me my dead years came to life again and surrounded me like a band of phantoms my burning seasons returned to me in their flame and sadness my life hollowed out by the death of madame de beaumont had remained empty airy forms houris or dreams issuing from that abyss took me by the hand and led me back to the days of the sylph i was no longer in the spot which i occupied i dreamed of other shores some secret influence urged me to the regions of the dawn whither i was drawn besides by the plan of my new work and the religious voice which released me from the vow of the village-woman my foster-mother as all my faculties had extended as i had never misused life it superabounded with the pith of my intelligence and art triumphing in my nature added to the poet's inspirations i had what the fathers of the thebaid called ascensions of the heart raphael forgive the blasphemy of the simile raphael before the transfiguration only sketched upon the easel could not have been more electrified by his masterpiece than was i by eudore and simodosse whose names i did not yet know and whose images i dimly saw through an atmosphere of love and fame thus does the native genius which tormented me in the cradle sometimes return on its steps after deserting me thus are my former sufferings renewed nothing heals within me if my wounds close instantly they open again suddenly like those of the crucifixes of the middle ages which bleed on the anniversary of the passion i have no alternative to obtain relief during these crises but to give a free course to the fever of my thoughts in the same way as one has his veins lanced when the blood rushes to the heart or rises to the head but of what am i speaking o oh, religion where then are thy powers thy restraints thy balsams am i not writing all these things at a distance of countless years from the hour at which i gave birth to rene i had a thousand reasons to believe myself dead and i live tis a great pity those afflictions of the isolated poet condemned to suffer the spring in spite of saturn are unknown to the man who does not go outside the common laws for him the years are ever young the young kids says oppian watch over the author of their being when he comes to fall into the huntsman's net they offer him in their mouths the tender flowering grass which they have gone to gather from afar and bring him in their lips fresh water drawn from the adjacent brook on my return from lyons i found letters from m joubert they informed me that it was not possible for him to be at villeneuve before september i replied your departure from paris is too remote and distresses me you well know that my wife will never consent to arrive at villeneuve before you she has a head of her own and since she has been with me i find myself at the head of two heads very difficult to govern we shall remain at lyons where they make us eat so prodigiously that i hardly have the courage to leave this excellent town the abbe de bonville is here back from rome he is wonderfully well he is merry he preachifies and no longer thinks of his woes he embraces you and will write to you in short everybody is in high spirits except myself you are the only one to grumble tell fontaine that i have dined with m saget this m saget was the providence of the canons he lived on the hill of sainte foy in the district of the good wine the way to his house led up near the spot where rousseau had spent the night on the banks of the Saône. i remember he says spending a delightful night outside the town on a road which skirted the Saône. gardens raised terrace-wise bordered the road on the opposite side it had been very warm that day 
the evening was charming the dew moistened the parched grass no wind no quiet night the air was cool without being chill the sun after setting had left red vapours in the sky and their reflection made the water rose-coloured the trees on the terraces were laden with nightingales which replied one to the other i walked along in a sort of ecstasy abandoning my senses and my heart to the enjoyment of all this and only sighing a little with regret at enjoying it alone absorbed in my sweet reverie i prolonged my walk well into the night without perceiving that i was tired i perceived it at last i lay down voluptuously on the shelf of a sort of niche or false door sunk into a terrace wall the canopy of my bed consisted of the tops of the trees a nightingale was exactly over my head i fell asleep to its singing my slumbers were sweet my awakening even more so it was broad daylight my eyes on opening beheld the water the verdure an admirable landscape with rousseau's charming itinerary in one's hand one arrived at m saget's the ancient and lean bachelor formerly married wore a green cap a grey camlet coat nankeen pantaloons blue stockings and beaver shoes he had lived long in paris and had been intimate with mademoiselle de Vienne. she wrote him very witty letters scolded him and gave him very good advice he ignored it for he did not take the world seriously believing apparently like the mexicans that the world had already used four suns and that at the fourth which is lighting us at present men had been changed into maggots he did not trouble his mind about the martyrdom of st pothin and st irenaeus nor of the massacre of the protestants drawn up side by side by order of mandelot the governor of lyons all of them having their throats cut on the same side opposite the field of the shooting at the brotteau he would tell me details of it while strolling among his vines mingling with his narrative verses of lois labbe he would not have missed a single mouthful during the last misfortunes of lyons under the chat verite on certain days a certain calf's head was served up at saint foy after being soused for five nights boiled in madeira and stuffed full of exquisite things very pretty peasant girls waited at table they served excellent home-grown wine out of demijohns the size of three bottles we swooped upon the saget banquet i and the cassock chapter the hillside was quite black with us our dapper verse soon came to the end of his provisions in the ruin of his last moments he was taken in by two or three of the old mistresses who had plundered his life a kind of women says st cyprian who live as though they could be loved quae sic vivis ut possis adamari we tore ourselves from the delights of capua to go and see the chartreuse still accompanied by m ballanche we hired a calash whose disjointed wheels made a lamentable noise on reaching vorep we stopped at an inn at the top of the town the next morning at break of day we mounted on horseback and set out preceded by a guide at the village of saint laurent at the bottom of the grand chartreuse we crossed the threshold of the valley and passing between two walls of rocks followed the road leading up to the monastery when speaking of combourg i have told you what i experienced in that spot the deserted buildings were cracking under the supervision of a kind of farmer of the ruins a lay brother had remained to take care of an infirm solitary who had just died religion had imposed loyalty and obedience upon friendship we saw the narrow grave freshly covered over and napoleon was just about to dig a huge one at austerlitz we were shown the convent enclosure the cells each with its garden and workshop we noticed joiners boards and turners wheels the hand had dropped the chisel in a gallery were displayed the portraits of the superiors of the chartreuse the ducal palace at venice preserves the series of the ricciati of the doges what different spots and memories high up at some distance we were taken to the chapel of lesueur's immortal recluse after dining in an immense kitchen we set out again and met carried in a palanquin like a rajah m chaptal formerly an apothecary then a senator 
next owner of Chanteloup and inventor of beetroot sugar, the greedy heir of the beautiful Indian reed canes of Sicily, perfected by the Otaheitan sun. As I descended from the forests, my thoughts turned to the Cenobites of old. For centuries they carried, together with a little earth in the skirts of their gowns, fir plants which have grown into trees on the rocks. Happy, O ye who travelled noiselessly through the world, nor even turned your heads in passing. No sooner had we reached the entrance to the valley than a storm burst, a deluge dashed down, and vexed torrents rushed roaring from every ravine. Madame de Chateaubriand, becoming reckless for very fear, galloped through the flint stones, the water and the lightning flashes. She had flung away her umbrella the better to hear the thunder. The guide cried to her, Recommend your soul to God, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We reached Warep to the sound of the tocsin. What remained of the cloven storm lay before us. In the distant landscape we saw a blazing village, and the moon rounding out the upper portion of his disk above the clouds, like the pale, bald forehead of St. Bruno, the founder of the Order of Silence. M. Ballanche, all dripping with rain, said with his immovable placidity, I am like a fish in the water. I have just seen Vorep again in this year, 1838. The storm was there no longer, but two witnesses of it still remain, Madame de Chateaubriand and M. Ballanche. I mention this because I have too often in these memoirs had to call attention to the dead. On returning to Lyon, we left our companion there and went to Villeneuve. I have told you about this little town, my walks and my regrets on the banks of the Yonne with M. Joubert. Three old maids used to live there, Mademoiselle Piat. They reminded me of my grandmother's three friends at Planquet, saving the difference in social position. The virgins of Villeneuve died one after the other, and I thought of them when I saw a grass-grown flight of steps running up outside their empty house. What used these village damsels to talk about in their time? They spoke of a dog, and of a muff which their father had once bought them at Saint-Fer. To me this was as charming as the council of the same town at which St. Bernard had Abelard, my fellow Breton, condemned. The maids of the muff were Eloise's paps. Perhaps they loved, and their letters brought to light will one day entrance posterity. Who knows? Perhaps they wrote to their lord, also their father, also their brother, also their spouse, Domino Suo, Imo Patri, etc., that they felt honoured by the name of friend, by the name of mistress, or of courtesan, concubinae velscorti. In the midst of his learning, says a grave doctor, I find that Abelard played an admirably foolish prank when he suborned with love his pupil Eloise. A great and new sorrow surprised me at Villeneuve. To tell it you, I must go back to a few months before my Swiss journey. I was still occupying the house in the Rue Miromenil, when, in the autumn of 1804, Madame de Caux came to Paris. The death of Madame de Beaumont had finished the affecting of my sister's reason. She was very near refusing to believe in the death, suspecting some mystery in the disappearance, or including heaven in the number of the enemies who mocked at her misfortunes. She had nothing. I had chosen an apartment in the Rue Comartin for her, deceiving her as to the rent and as to the arrangements which I told her to make with the keeper of an eating-house. Like a flame ready to expire, her genius shed the brightest light. She was all illumined with it. She would write a few lines which she threw into the fire, or else copy from books some thoughts in harmony with the disposition of her soul. She did not remain long in the Rue Comartin. She went to live with the Dame Saint-Michel in the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Jacques. Madame de Navarre was the superior of the convent. Lucille had a little cell overlooking the garden. I noticed that she followed with her eyes, with I know not what gloomy longing, the nuns who walked in the enclosure around the vegetable beds. One could guess that she envied the saints, and going further, aspired to the angels. I will sanctify these memoirs by deposing in them as relics the following letters of Madame de Caux, written before she had taken flight for her eternal country. 
17th January. I had placed all my happiness in you and in Madame de Beaumont. I fled from my cares and my sorrows in the thought of you too. My whole occupation was to love you. Last night I made long reflections upon your character and your ways. As you and I are always near each other, it needs some time, I think, to know me. Such is the variety of ideas in my head. Such is the opposition of my timidity and my peculiar external weakness to my real inner strength. Too much about myself. My illustrious brother, accept my fondest thanks for all the favours and all the marks of friendship which you have never ceased to show me. This is the last letter you will receive from me in the morning, albeit I communicate my ideas to you. They nevertheless remain quite completely within myself. No date. Do you seriously, dear, think me safe from some impertinence on the part of Monsieur Chendolle? I am quite determined not to invite him to continue his visits. I resign myself to look upon Tuesdays as the last. I do not wish to trouble his politeness. I am closing for ever the book of my fate and sealing it with the seal of reason. I shall now consult its pages no more on the trifles than on the important things of life. I give up all my foolish notions. I wish neither to occupy nor to vex myself with those of other people. I will abandon myself with heart and soul to all the events of my passage through this world. What a pity that I should pay myself so much attention! God can now afflict me only in you. I thank him for the precious, kind, and dear present which he has made me in your person, and for having preserved my life without stain. Those are all my treasures. I could take for an emblem of my life the moon in a cloud with this device, often obscured, never tarnished. Farewell, dear. You will perhaps be surprised at my words since yesterday morning. Since I saw you, my heart has raised itself to God, and I have laid it wholly at the foot of the cross, its sole and true place. Thursday. Good morning, dear. What colour are your ideas this morning? As for me, I remember that the only person who was able to relieve me when I was fearing for Madame de Farcy's life was she who said to me, But it is within the range of possible things that you may die before her. Could any one have spoken more to the point? There is nothing, dear, like the idea of death to rid us of the future. I hasten to rid you of myself this morning, for I feel myself too much in the mood to say fine things. Goodbye, my poor brother. Keep joyful. No date. While Madame de Farcy lived, always by her side, I had not noticed the need of being in communion of thought with someone. I possessed that advantage unconsciously. But since we lost that friend, and circumstances having separated me from you, I have known the torture of never being able to refresh and renew one's mind in someone's conversation. I feel that my ideas hurt me when I am unable to get rid of them. This has surely to do with my bad organisation. Nevertheless, I am fairly satisfied, since yesterday, with my courage. I pay no attention to my grief and to the sort of inward faintness which I feel. I have abandoned myself. Continue to be always kind to me. Before long it will be humanity. Good-bye, dear. Till soon, I hope. No date. Be easy, dear. My health is recovering visibly. I often ask myself why I take so much pains to bolster it up. I am like a madman who should build a fortress in the middle of a desert. Farewell, my poor brother. No date. As I have a bad headache to-night, I have just simply, and at haphazard, written down some thoughts of Fenelon's for you, so as to keep my promise. We are confined within narrow limits, when we shut ourselves up in our own existence. On the contrary, we feel at liberty when we quit this prison to enter into the immensity of God. We shall soon find once more all that we have lost. We are daily approaching it with rapid strides, yet a little while, and we shall no more have cause to weep. It is we who die. What we love still lives and shall never die. You impart to yourself a deceitful strength, such as a raging fever gives to a sick man. For some days past a sort of convulsive movement has been visible in you, from the effort to affect an air of gaiety and courage, 
whilst a silent anguish filled your soul. That is as much as my head and my bad pen permit me to write to you this evening. If you like, I will begin again to-morrow, and perhaps tell you some more. Good evening, dear. I shall never cease telling you that my heart prostrates itself before that of Fenelon, whose tenderness seems to me so profound, and his virtue so exalted. Good-bye, dear. I am awake and offer you a thousand loves and a hundred blessings. I feel well this morning, and am anxious as to whether you will be able to read me, and whether those thoughts of Fenelon's will seem to you well chosen. I fear my heart has concerned itself too much with the selection. No date. Could you think that since yesterday I have been madly occupied in correcting you? The Blossacks have trusted me with one of your novels in the greatest secrecy. As I do not think that you have made the most of your ideas, I am amusing myself by trying to render them in their full value. Can audacity go further than that? Forgive me, great man, and remember that I am your sister, and that I have some little right to make an ill use of your riches. Saint Michel. I will no longer say, do not come to see me again, because, having from now but a few days to spend in Paris, I feel that your presence is essential to me. Do not come to-day until four. I expect to be out till then. Dear, I have in my head a thousand contradictory ideas touching things which seem to me to exist and not to exist, which to me have the effect of objects of which one only caught sight in a glass, and of which, consequently, one could not make sure, however distinctly one saw them. I wish to trouble about all this no longer. From this moment I abandon myself, and like you I have not the resource of changing banks, but I feel sufficient courage to attach no importance to the persons and things on my shore, and to fix myself entirely and irrevocably in the author of all justice and all truth. There is only one displeasure to which I fear that I shall grow insensible with great difficulty, that of unintentionally, in passing, striking against the destiny of some other person, not because of any interest that might be taken in me. I am not mad enough for that. Saint Michel, dear, never did the sound of your voice give me so much pleasure as when I heard it yesterday on my staircase. My ideas then strove to overcome my courage. I was seized with content to feel you so near me. You appeared, and my whole inner being returned to orderliness. I sometimes feel a great repugnance at heart to drinking my cup. How can that heart, which is so small a space, contain so much existence and so much grief? I am greatly dissatisfied with myself, greatly dissatisfied. My affairs and my ideas carry me away. I scarcely occupy myself with God now, and I confine myself to saying to him a hundred times a day, O Lord, make haste to hearken unto my prayer, for my spirit waxeth faint. No date. Brother, do not grow weary of my letter, nor of my company. Think that soon you will be forever released from my importunities. My life is casting its last light like a lamp which has burnt out in the darkness of a long night and which sees the rise of the dawn in which it is to die. Please, brother, cast a single glance at the early moments of our existence. Remember that we have often been seated on the same lap, and pressed both together to the same bosom, that already you added tears to mine, that from the earliest days of your life you protected and defended my frail existence, that our games united us, and that I shared your first studies. I will not speak to you of our adolescence, of the innocence of our thoughts and of our joys, nor of our mutual need to see each other incessantly. If I retrace the past, I candidly confess, brother, that it is to make me revive the more in your heart. When you left France for the second time, you placed your wife in my hands. You made me promise never to part from her. True to this dear engagement, I voluntarily stretched out my hands to the irons, and entered into the regions destined alone for the victims vowed to death. In those abodes I have had no anxiety save as to your fate, Incessantly I questioned the forebodings of my heart touching yourself. 
when i had recovered my liberty amidst the ills which came to overwhelm me the thought alone of our meeting kept me up to-day when i am irretrievably losing the hope of running my course by your side bear with my griefs i shall become resigned to my destiny and it is only because i am still fighting against it that i suffer such cruel anguish but when i shall have grown submissive to my fate and what a fate where are my friends my protectors and my treasures to whom matters my existence that existence abandoned by all and weighing down entirely upon itself my god are not my present woes enough for my weakness without yet adding to them the dread of the future forgive me my too dear friend i will resign myself i will fall asleep in a slumber as of death upon my destiny but during the few days which i have to spend in this town let me seek my last consolations in you let me believe that my presence is sweet to you believe me among the hearts that love you none approaches the sincerity and tenderness of my impotent friendship for you fill my memory with agreeable recollections which prolong my existence beside you yesterday when you spoke to me of coming to you you seemed to me anxious and serious while your words were affectionate why brother could i be to you also a subject of aversion and annoyance you know it was not i that proposed the amiable distraction of going to see you and that i promised you to make no ill use of it but if you have changed your opinion why did you not tell me so frankly i have no courage to set against your politeness formerly you used to distinguish me a little more from the common herd and to do me more justice as you reckon upon me to-day i will come to see you presently at eleven o'clock we will arrange together what seems best to you for the future i have written to you feeling sure that i should not have the courage to say to you a single word of what this letter contains end of book four part one